Revelation 20. It's 15 verses. I'm going to read the entire chapter because I want us to see the big picture of what is taking place in this chapter. So rather than dividing it into parts, I wanted us, by God's grace, to be able to step back and to be able to see the unfolding of, of God's plan contained in this chapter. So follow with me as I read the text. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Would you please bow with me? Lord, our Father, we bow before you confessing our need for you. We believe that by your grace, you have revealed who you are. So we ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding that we might know you more deeply, 
and that we might understand Christ more intimately. So, Father, give us understanding, not only with our minds, but with our hearts, so that we will be transformed to be more like Jesus and that we will live faithfully in times that will try our faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know, I have very fond memories of growing up a little country church outside of Athens, Tennessee. And I can remember as a little boy sitting next to my mom and dad, fourth pew opposite the piano side. And it would be a common occurrence that as the preacher got up to preach, I would kind of nudge dad and say, can I see your pen? And then I would nudge mom, can I see the bulletin? And I would start to doodle. And one of the things I would often doodle is just a very simple start that you would draw on a piece of paper. But isn't it an amazing how something as simple as drawing a star can become very complicated. For example, I came across these instructions on how to draw a little star like I would doodle. So if you want to draw a star, this is how you do it. The geometric drawing can be made by drawing a four-inch circle. Draw the horizontal and vertical diameter AB and CD. Mark the point of intersection E. Bisect EB and mark the point of intersection F. With F as the center and CF as a radius, describe an arc cutting AE. Mark the point of intersection G. Mark GC as a radius and C as a center. Describe two arcs cutting the circumference at H and J. With H and J as centers and the same radius, describe arcs cutting the circumference K and L. Form a star by connecting C and L, C and K, H and K, L and J, and H and J. And then you have a star. <laughs> Complicating and confusing. Well, I have to confess to you, that's how I felt trying to study and dive into Revelation 20 this week. Because I kept thinking, Lord, this is complex, it's complicated, but, but Father, there's a simple message in there. I believe that. Now, without stating the obvious, which as preachers we are prone to do, Revelation 20 is a greatly debated passage. This is a chapter with more interpretations than there are people gathered under this roof this morning. Therefore, in approaching it with any of us, I think there is a call for humility and grace to understand that we may approach it in different ways. So as I have studied this this week, as I've done my best to prepare this message to present to you, to Lord willing, encourage you to feed your soul by the power of the Spirit, I wanted to approach this in a way that is consistent with the way I've been interpreting Revelation up to this point, but also in a way that's clear. I'm not going to even, even try to portray that I can explain everything in this chapter. But I do believe there's enough clear truth here to encourage us. I've come to understand this chapter as an overview. In many ways, a summary of what has already been said in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like looking at a, a Google Maps app. You know, when you're looking at it and you're hearing directions, it takes you street by street, turn right here, turn left. And if you look at it, you can only see what is immediately in front of you. But if you do that thing with your fingers and spread them out and it gets wider, then you can see a little bit more of the big picture. You can see where you started and where you are. 
Well, as it were, I think Revelation 20 in a way is where we kind of move our fingers back. God moves his fingers back so we can come to see the big picture again. Now, I want to do something a little odd. I'm going to ask Elton to advance to the next uh, slide. Now, I'm not quite there yet, but, but I know many of you take notes, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to jot this, this little chart down. Because one of the things when you see the big picture is that you see this chapter, chapter 20 through 22, actually reiterates what was written in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. So when we talk about going big picture, we're really seeing that what is being portrayed here is nothing new. It's something that God has been preparing his people for, to see the resurrection of his people, the, the messianic kingdom, the millennium, the final battle against evil, and even the new temple and the new Jerusalem. So really what we read in Revelation is nothing new. It's something that John, at this point, or I should say the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us so we can see the big picture. Now, the images of this chapter do not fit easily into time or space. This is what I mean. We recognize that Satan is real. He is. There's a real being known as the deceiver, Satan. But we know that he's not a dragon. Now, he's a dragon in the sense that he is ugly and he deceives and he seeks to destroy. But we know that he is not a literal dragon. And we know that he couldn't be held by a physical, real metal chain like you would, would, would get at Lowe's. A chain will not hold Satan. So we recognize also that when it talks about this pit, we couldn't find the coordinates of this, this abyss like we could locate it on the earth. We recognize that the language here is symbolic. Now, to say that something is a symbol doesn't negate the reality it represents. The symbol points to that reality. So when I say that this language is symbolic, it doesn't mean there's not something real that it's pointing to. Now, many would say, well, I just, I want to take it literally. And I understand that. But to take it literally, you have to understand the symbolism. We use symbols all the time. For example, and I know I'm going to move on, this next screen here that Elton pulled up is a symbol of the eagle, or the eagle is a symbol of the United States. Ever since 1782, the eagle has, the eagle has been symbolic of our nation. Now, is our nation an eagle? No, it's not. <laughs> no. But that eagle is meant to symbolize some things that we hope are true about our nation. Being regal, great strength, long life. It is a symbol that points to a reality. Chapter 20 uses symbols to communicate the big picture of God's plan. These symbols point to the reality of how God will culminate the judgment of this world and shows us the outcome of history. Now, I believe chapter 20 reveals the drama of redemption in three scenes. And these scenes are marked off, marked off by two words, I saw. You can see it at the very beginning of verse 1. John says, I saw. So the first scene is from verse 1 through verse 6. Then, I'm sorry, verse 4. Then in verse 4, he says the second, I saw. The second scene begins at verse 4 and goes through verse 10. The third scene of the drama of redemption occurs in verse 11. I saw. 
So we see these markers in this chapter to help us to, to get a picture of the big picture. And the very first scene we see in verses 1 through 3 is this. Satan is ruled by Christ. Notice verse 1 begins, this angel comes down from heaven. He's holding in his hand this great key in this chain. The key is the key to the bottomless pit. Now this is not the first appearance of this angel. In chapter 9, this angel appeared holding the key to the abyss. And at that point, this abyss is opened, allowing these demonic entities to come and to wreak havoc upon the earth. In many ways, you could say that this angel is the cosmic policeman who has come to clasp the cuffs upon Satan. You see, this chain shows a limiting of his power, that he is confined. And keep in mind also that the bottomless pit described here is not hell. Hell is described later as the, the lake of fire where those who rebel against God as well as Satan, as well as death, are all cast into. So this pit or this abyss is not hell. So these are some questions that come to our mind. First, what is this binding? What does that mean? When does it occur? When is Satan bound? And certainly the, the larger question that comes to mind is, what is this thousand years? I want to deal with that last question first. What is this thousand years? Because we understand that by, by coming to grasp the meaning of the thousand years, I think we can understand better what it means to say that Satan is bound and the reason for his release. Because to me, that's been one of the greatest puzzles of this passage. We see in verses 1 through 3 that Satan is seized, he is bound, and he is thrown into the pit, and it is sealed. But look to verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released, and he will come out, and he will deceive. So I think by understanding the nature of this thousand years, some of the other questions will come into clear focus as we try to answer them. Now keep in mind that in apocalyptic language, you see, this language that's used in Revelation and other parts of the Scripture is apocalyptic language that is used to communicate truth through images. And as I've said time and time again, apocalyptic language is meant to impact your heart through your imagination, through these fantastic images. Now numbers in apocalyptic language take on symbolic meaning. Let me give you an example. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, 144,000 saints are described. 144,000. But before we start getting out our clicker to start counting, when we come to verse 9, verse 9, the 144,000 are described as a great multitude that can't be numbered. So the point of 144,000 is to say it is a number so large you can't count it. But the number 12 is at its base. 12 is completeness. 144,000 is 12,000 times 12. A full number according to God's plan that can't be counted. Let me give you another example from Revelation chapter 17 verse 12 regarding time. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not, not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings. Now look at the three words that are in bold. For one hour. Now if we read that literally, what that means is that these kings that receive power, they get power for 60 minutes. Start your stopwatch. 60 minutes and then it's done. 
unless we realize that the one hour is really communicating brevity, a limited brief time that they will be allowed to reign. We understand that as momentary. So to be consistent, the thousand years should be understood as a long, indeterminate amount of time that is complete according to God's plan. Ten carries with it the significance of completeness also. A thousand, ten to the third power, means a very long time. So the question then is, if Satan is seized and bound for a very long time, when is this? Is this time now, or is it in the future? Well, I think the answer to that is what is meant when it says that Satan is bound. Now remember, the abyss is not hell. That comes later. Hell is forever. Satan will never escape hell once he is thrown there. But the bottomless pit is temporary. And I believe that the chain along with the bottomless pit signifies a limiting of his power. The chains show his power being curtailed. Because notice something in verse 3. Notice that he is thrown into the pit and it is sealed over him. His powers are limited, but notice the two words that follow him in the middle of the verse. So that. What's the purpose of him being bound? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The power of Satan to deceive is curtailed according to God's plan. You see, this helps us to answer the question as to the timing of this. Because if we understand nations to be something into the future and we interpret Revelation in strict chronological order, we run into a problem. The problem is this. Look back to chapter 19 in verse 15. This description of the destruction of the enemies of God says that from his mouth, that is from the mouth of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The nations are stricken down. So if we're reading this in strict chronological order, we run into a problem because if the nations are stricken down and destroyed and slain, verse 20, they were slain by the sword, how can there be nations for Satan to deceive later? Which tells me that this is something that is taking place even now. Now, as I make my argument, I want to ask you to consider biblical history with me for just a moment. Israel was elected by God to be a light to the nations. In other words, God was going to work through the people of Israel to be a light to the nations, a light to all the non-believers, a light to the Gentiles. But the people of Israel did not fare very well in doing that. In fact, rather than being a light in the darkness, they were overcome by the darkness so that in the Old Testament you see judgment coming upon Israel because they were not a light into the darkness until Jesus comes along. I encourage you to do a study sometime through the Gospels at the number of times Jesus mentions Satan being bound. He speaks of binding the strong man and plundering his house. He tells the apostles in Luke chapter 10 that as you go out, Satan and the demons themselves will fall under your authority. You're able to curtail the power of the demonic. And to me, a key passage for understanding this binding of Satan is from the Gospel of John upon the screen. John 12. I read it earlier. Now notice, there were some who went up to worship at the feast. And they were Greeks. That's the nations. Non-Jewish people coming. 
So they get word to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now look at how Jesus answers. Because this is puzzling. Jesus, Jesus, there are some Greeks that want to see you. I would expect Jesus to say, bring them over. Let me talk with them. But our Lord doesn't do that. He says, no, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He goes from Greeks showing up to now is the time of the cross. So to me the question is, what is it about these Greeks coming that makes him say this is the time where the cross is to come? I think that's answered later in this same chapter. Up on the screen you'll see John 12. Go back one if you don't mind, Elton. There we go. Now is the judgment of this world. He's talking about the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Upon the cross, he is saying, in a way, Satan is cast out. I believe that's parallel to what we read here, that his power is limited now to deceive the nations. Why? Because when Jesus is lifted up, what will he do? Draw all, draw all people unto himself. He is saying that at the cross and the resurrection, the power of Satan to deceive and to stop the proclamation of the gospel is curtailed so the gospel can be proclaimed to all the nations of the world. And is that not the task you and I have been given? All authority is given to me, Jesus said. Now you go and preach and teach and baptize to all the nations. Why? Satan can't stop the spread of the gospel. It cannot be extinguished. I think that's what's being described in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. That the cross and the resurrection, the power of Satan to deceive and to stop the proclamation of the kingdom was curtailed until he is released. Skip over to verse 7 in chapter 20. He'll be released from prison. Now look at verse 8. What does he do when he's released? He goes out to deceive the nations. To deceive them once more. And he does even more for that. He gathers the enemies of the church together. Now these enemies are recognized by a phrase from Ezekiel, Gog and Magog. Now Gog and, Gog and Magog are the archetypical enemies of God. Now if you'll allow me to show my nerdum for just a moment. If you read comics, and I guess now you know that I do secretly at times, that the Joker is the archetype villain of Batman. The Joker's that archetype symbol of chaos, insanity, wanting to cause problems. So if you look at a guy and you say, man, he is like the Joker, you're saying, man, he causes chaos. Gog and Magog are that symbolic enemy of God. To say it's Gog and Magog are to say it is the enemies that rise up against God. And ironically, in Ezekiel 38, where it speaks of Gog and Magog coming against the people of God, the people of God are at security, at peace. Notice where the people of God are, are here in verse 9. They're in camp and the beloved city. They're at security and enemies come upon them. Now, let me try to summarize what I'm saying. That I think what we are seeing now is the fulfillment of verse 7. That as God in his divine sovereignty and plan is allowing Satan to work to deceive. And the reason I believe that is that we are seeing an increase in persecution among Christians in the last 100 years. Let me quote some statistics from the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. First is this. Do you realize that Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide? An average of 180 Christians are killed each month for their faith. Consider also, number two, 
According to the U.S. State Department, in more than 60 countries, Christians face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors because of their faith in Christ. Number three, consider that Christians face persecution even in countries with a large Christian population. For instance, in Colombia, Christian political rebels target leaders because many people have left their groups after coming to Christ. The church is frequently attacked because these groups view Christians as a threat to their rebellion. Now, the way I see that, that means that as this persecution increases, as it's becoming harder and harder to proclaim the gospel, to me, it means that the return of Jesus is very near. But it also means this, and this is why we should not lose hope. Though we face trials and temptations, Satan is under the control of God. One of the greatest misnomers theologically is this idea that you have Satan on one side and God on the other. And they are duking it out. Only God is sovereign. There is no question mark after that. And even Satan is used to accomplish the greater glory of God. So take courage in this. Even if we disagree on the interpretation of these verses, the reality is, is that God controls Satan. William Gurnall, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, encourages believers to hold fast because God is watching Satan's every move and will not let Satan have the victory. Gurnall writes, When God says, Stay, Satan must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He dare, does not dare to snatch even a tidbit for the master's eye is always upon him. And so it is. Our master's eye is ever upon him. After his first act of obedience, his failure and his doom were sealed. That is our hope. That even as persecution arises, the flame of the gospel will not, cannot be extinguished. And neither will the followers of Christ. You see, the second scene opens in verse 4. And in scene number 2, we see this. You'll see it on the screen. The saints will reign with Christ. John sees these thrones and seated on them are those to whom authority to judge was committed. He doesn't comment on who these are, but he speaks of these thrones and they're judging. But then he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. He sees those who did not worship the beast or receive his mark. In other words, he sees the faithful who do not cast their lot in with the evil one as reigning with Christ. Now the question comes, where's this taking place? Some say the thrones show this is only in heaven. But thrones are mentioned 47 times in Revelation. 44 of those times it refers to heaven, but three times it refers to a throne on earth. So it looks like, yes, this is in heaven. However, verse 7 shifts back to earth. And then verse 8 says that he'll gather enemies of God from the four corners of the earth. So we're faced, where is this? But I would submit to you, the point's not geographical. God's not giving us a map to say, where is this taking place? The point is relational. John is not concerned with where this is taking place. He is concerned with whom it is taking place. John speaks in relational terms. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, They came to life and reigned with 
Christ for a thousand years. At the end of verse 6, they will reign with him for a thousand years. They are with Christ. These faithful believers are associated with Christ, united with him. I believe this is what Paul wrote of in, in the book of 2 Timothy where he wrote these words. You'll see them up on the screen in verses 11 through 13. This is a trustworthy saying. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the martyrs, those who do not fall in with the culture around us, those who do not identify with the forces arrayed against God's reign with Jesus. The one who is faithful, even if he dies, reigns with Christ. The one who is faithful in life, holding to Jesus, reigns with Christ. And is that not what Paul wrote in Colossians? Where are we now? We are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. So yes, we are here. We suffer. We struggle. But there is a reality where we are united with Christ, reigning with him. So that as Jesus said, even if they kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. Even if they take everything away from us, they cannot touch what is eternal where we reign with Jesus. And I, amen. That to me is the big picture of this. This language of the first resurrection, verses 5 through 6, I believe is a description of our salvation. Notice he says the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. So when history comes to an end, there will be a resurrection bodily of all people. All people. So this first resurrection speaks, I believe, of salvation when you pass from being dead unto life. So those who, according to Apostle Paul in Ephesians, who were dead but are now alive, reign with Christ in the heavenlies at a place where their inheritance cannot be touched and are reigning with him even now. That's why it says this is the first resurrection. You've passed from death unto life. The second resurrection, all humanity resurrected to stand before God. But the message to every believer is clear. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your trust lies in him. For he is victorious. Look to verse 9 in chapter 20. The enemies march. They cover the broad plain of the earth. In other words, there is this, this persecution worldwide against the believers. And look at the conclusion of it. Fire came down from, down from heaven and consumed them. It's not much of a battle. God sends fire. Boom, that's it. It's a picture of judgment. And interestingly enough, on a side note, a pastoral rabbit trail. Do you know in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, verse 22, we are told that Gog, God, slays Gog and Magog with fire. Look at verse 9. God sends fire down from heaven to destroy his enemies. Did you know in Ezekiel 38, 21, it says that Gog and Magog, the enemies of God, are killed with the sword. Look back to chapter 19, verse 21. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That's where I say this is giving that big picture. The enemies of God are destroyed. And it is a picture of indubitable and undoubtable, unquestionable and unequivocal, uncontested and incontrovertible defeat of the enemies of God. No question. And the second scene closes, leading us to the third scene where there's a warning. You see, in the third scene, the sinners are judged by Christ. Judged by God. 
This is a scene that is awesome and terrifying. God the judge takes his seat behind the bar where all will stand to give an account. Notice how terrifying this is. Look at verse 11. Earth and sky try to run away, but they can't hide. Nothing can hide from the gaze of God our judge. Nothing and no one can hide from the throne of the universe. And the description here is of all the dead, great and small, rich and poor, weak and strong. The movers and the shakers, the power brokers and king makers, the rulers and the ruled all stand before God and the books are opened. This is a way of communicating that every thought, every action, every word, every intention will be judged by God. Notice what it emphasizes two times in verse 12. The dead are judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, death gives up all the dead, and they're judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It's a way of saying there's no justifying our sin. There's no spin. There's no escaping the reality. And our standard will be a holy God. In 1992, a criminal by the name of Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested in Rapid City, South Dakota, I believe. Yes, yeah, South Dakota. He was a thief. When they arrested him, they were searching him, and they found in his wallet a folded-up sheet of paper. They opened it up and found something very interesting. You see, this, this young man was a thief, but he had a code. This was his code. I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. I guess he takes Visa, too. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob many marts or 7-Eleven stores. If I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will rob only seven months out of the year. I mean, everybody needs a break. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Now let me ask you, this, this thief had a code of honor. This my code. Do you think the judge took that code and said, you know, Dennis, looking at this, you pretty much followed your code. You know, you're good to go. You did rob, but you had your code. No. The judge said, that's meaningless. You will be judged by the laws. When we stand before God, we are not judged based upon our own code of morality. We are judged upon His holiness. And because of that, we're in serious trouble. All of us. And if this passage were to stop there, this would be horribly bad news. But it doesn't. Because there's one more book this book is known as the book of life and it is opened and the book of life is that we are told contains the name of those who have been saved from God's wrath we find out that the names written in that book of life were written before the foundations of the world meaning security it means these names can never be blotted out never erased and we find out that only those whose names are written in the book of life 
will enter into heaven. So the question becomes, how can we know our name is in the book of life? And the answer is this, by faith in Jesus Christ. When we use the phrase, Jesus saves, you have to understand that means he saves from God's wrath. That's our only hope. To believe that Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for our sins. So for the believer, this is a glorious hope that grace has the last word for us. But for those who reject Christ, this is a warning. Because all who are not found in the book of life are cast into hell. Where they will be punished forever. A British evangelist by the name of Rico Tice visited a friend in Australia. They were on the beach in Botany Bay, and Rico decided it looked good to take a swim. He takes off his shirt and is getting ready to head into the water when his friend says, Hold up there, mate. I wish I could do a good Australian accent, but I won't try that. Hold up, mate. What are you doing? Rico said, I'm going for a swim. His friend said, Rico, what about the signs? What signs? And his friend points at this big sign that says, Danger, sharks. With all the confidence of an Englishman, Rico said, Don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. His friend said, Listen, mate, 200 Australians have died in shark attacks. So you've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. You've got to decide that, man. Rico said he decided not to go for a swim. These warnings are not here to ruin your fun. They're here to say that judgment is real. History will come to a close. Jesus will return. And your only hope, my only hope, is to have faith in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection for our deliverance. Will you bow your heads with me? This is a part of the service called an invitation. It's called that because you are invited to respond. To respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. The invitation is this. If you have questions about what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to be saved, I want to invite you to, to do something bold, and that's when we stand and begin singing. To come down the aisle, I'm here at the front. I would be glad to shake your hand and to begin talking with you or to introduce you to someone that will talk to you more about what it means to say Jesus saves. See, I know that's a cliche. We hear it all the time, and I think we fail to ask, what does that mean? So I'm inviting you, if you have questions, to come forward. Some of you know in whom you have believed. So I would invite you this morning that if your heart is heavy and you're struggling and you feel like you're compromising with the world to maybe come and just kneel at these kneeling benches and say, Lord, I want my allegiance to be clear. I want to be found faithful. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and after this prayer we will stand together and begin singing. Father, thank you for your grace. 
because it's by your grace that we are warned the things of this world will not continue indefinitely they're moving towards your appointed end Father regardless of the difference interpretations I think the conclusion is the same we need to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior so grant that Lord I pray that Jesus will be honored as we confess him as our Lord amen